This is Our American Stories, and every once in a while, it's important to dig down deep and bring you the stories that affect your lives, the kind of stories that matter to you the most. In this groundbreaking journalistic endeavor you're about to hear, our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, will shake America to its foundation with his profound and timeless retrospection into the time and lives of the Internet of Things and the Internet favorite, Talking Cats. Test one, two. Testing one, two. Every once in a while, we like to treat ourselves to the nonsensical musings of the common domestic house cat. Like this little guy, for example. We think he has rabies. You probably don't want to touch or go near a cat that sounds like this. But kids love talking cats. Like this little guy. He sure doesn't like to be pet. Our cat's fun. What lovely house pets. Like this little psycho. He's screaming the word no because he doesn't want to take a bath. Pure nightmare fuel. And this is perhaps the world's most famous talking cat. He's known as the Olong Johnson cat. Let's listen to what he's saying. Oh, my dog. Oh, Long John. Oh, Long Johnson. Oh, Don Piano. Why I eyes you. All the live long day. And last but not least, there's this creepy little guy known as the ISIS terrorist cat from deep in the heart of Syria. And this has been Talking Cats on Our American Stories. And thank you for that report, Jesse. That's very good. Very serious. (laughs) By the way, we love shifting moods and themes, and from that serious report to an even more serious report, the man who's been delivering us inspiring fortunes that come from the inside of fortune cookies is nearly out of ideas. For 30 years, Donald Lau has served as chief fortune writer at Wonton Foods, which builds itself as the largest manufacturer of fortune cookies, noodles, and other Chinese staples in the world. Now, he's stepping down. Why? He's got writer's block. But not all hope is lost. When Donald Lau bought the Wonton Food Factory in the 1980s, he started writing fortunes to go inside the fortune cookies. And now, decades later... He's passing the baton to his son, James Wong. Here's Donald and his son, James, talking about this peaceful exchange of power. When we bought the factory uh, back in the mid-80s, we decided to update the fortunes. And since my English was uh, the best among the group, uh, I was given the job. I guess I got the job by default. Writing fortunes was never uh, part of my career projection. I'm Don Lau. I've been with uh, Wonton Food for oh, more than 30 years now. My dad was with the company. Uh, he's now retired. So I would come around to the factories when I was at a very young age. That's how I got to know the business, basically just spending time there. My name is James Wong. Um, 
uh, role I have many. I'm in charge of overseeing IT, purchasing, and of course, fortune writing. Well, in the old days, uh, all the fortunes were um, the horoscope type uh, fortunes. Uh, uh, you will do this and this, you will meet uh, that person, uh, you will find love, uh, things like that. But over time, we've introduced some Chinese philosophy and uh, humor into the uh, fortune cookies. This role is kind of coming more prominent for me because Donald is saying that he should hand it off. Well, I'm getting uh, a writer's block more often, so that's why James is, uh, will be helping out and uh, he'll be taking over the responsibility. Me and Donald always joke around with the fortunes that it, that's in his head that he's thinking about. Uh, eventually, I kind of fell into the role. Fortune writing is the, the, the most fun of all the jobs that I can think of in the company. And usually, the inspiration would come from people around me. And also, there is definitely some type of philosophy that you need to keep in mind. Fortune cookies reaches everyone. A lot of times, I think about my daughter uh, and what kind of advice that I would give her. Failure is the mother to success. There are legal concerns whether we might risk a chance of getting sued. And it was apparently read by someone that is having trouble with the marriage. The husband is about to go off on a business trip. He was in a Chinese restaurant with his wife and got his fortune cookie. The message read, romance is in the air in your next trip. The wife got very upset and decided that it's our fault. There is a risk with anything that we write, but we still need to keep a positive attitude about it. There's a sense of seriousness in the office, and uh, fortune writing is definitely the outlet for our sense of humor. My daughter uh, became a doctor, and I asked her, uh, why do you want to be a doctor? And she said, I want to make people feel better. So I came up with a fortune that says, want to make people feel better? Forget med school, go into comedy instead. Your fortune, it's complicated. <laughs> I came up with one which will not be in the uh, fortune. Don't run for president. You're not a good liar. And another one, uh, you know that most fortune cookies are eaten in Chinese restaurants. You are what you eat, but you still don't look Chinese. <laughs> Come more often. <laughs> you will soon become such a VIP that the NSA will listen to your phone calls. We try to be humorous keep things a little lighthearted. And this is Lee Habib talking cats, fortune cookie writers. And by the way, Wanton Food makes a staggering 4.5 million cookies each day in their Queens, New York factory. Great job on this, Jesse, as always. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story. I could escape this feeling It's my channel.
This is Our American Stories. And every once in a while, we poke in on some part of the media and share it with you. By the way, we love Shark Tank. You hear regular segments from Shark Tanks. They're great stories. People pitching their products, pitching their lives to high net worth people and fantastic businessmen who may or may not invest in those enterprises for a stake of the business. Terrific show. We love Judge Judy. And sometimes we bring you an episode of Judge Judy. You have busy lives, and so we do it for you. And this is life with Lisa Ling wrapped up their third season. It's on CNN. They wrapped up their third season of programming where the award-winning journalist goes on what CNN calls a, quote, gritty, breathtaking journey to the far corners of America. If you listen to our This Is Life with Lisa Ling segments, you heard Ling's reporting where she managed to sympathize with literally the devil during her Satanist Next Door episode, and then with a notorious outlaw, outlaw motorcycle gang, the Mongols. But then she had an outstanding Fatherless Towns episode where she documents a special dance for daughters and their fathers who were incarcerated. The dance is held by the prison to help develop daddy-daughter relationships. Today we are happily featuring another great episode called Silicon Savants. Here's host Lisa Ling giving us a quick look into this week's episode. This is Jackson. I don't have like any clean shirts. I'm pissed about it. He's 19 years old and lives in this tiny room with Simon, who's 21. We woke up to tons of bugs that people had found. I'll fix it. And Stefan, also 21. Today is a big day for them. They hope to raise $1 million. Around here, that's not so far-fetched. So I'm coding right now. Yeah, you are. Oh, okay. Abe is 19, and he already created a million-dollar company. That's the new gold rush. Silicon Valley is teeming with investor money. Brilliant young people from all over the country are flocking here, hoping to become the next Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs. Do you have any regrets about not even having a high school diploma? None, no. These young savants are charting the future. So can we just see you control this car with your mind? Whoa, whoa. And changing the world. What happened in San Francisco in 2015 is going to be the subject of history books. Let's follow Lisa through the San Francisco Bay Area of Berkeley and Silicon Valley, California, and find out what America's young and brilliant minds are up to these days. If you're wondering what college students are up to these days, you don't have to look much further than a football stadium on an October weekend. It's 8 p.m. on a Friday night, and hundreds and hundreds of kids have converged here on the campus of UC Berkeley for a huge event. But don't be fooled. These kids aren't here to tailgate and watch the game. They're here to hack. This is your first hackathon. Whoa, hell yeah! This is the CalHacks Hackathon. More than 2,000 collegiates from all across the country will spend the next 36 hours inside this football stadium, racing to engineer cutting-edge computer-based projects from scratch. I just love to give a huge shout-out to all our corporate sponsors who made this hackathon possible. And with that, James Whitaker from Microsoft. (laughs) 
Don't clap until you hear what I have to say because I have bad news for you all. For every smart person standing here listening to this right now, there's a hundred thousand other smart people who are just as good as you. What's going to make you stand out? That is creativity. And now I'm getting warm. <laughs> Software is the opposable thumb for the human mind. Let's go back to Lisa and learn more about this hackathon. It quickly becomes clear to me that hackathons are gold mines for Silicon Valley recruiters. So uh, we're Uber. If you build something sick and you show it to us, we give you a job. Sponsor companies give participants access to their most up-to-date technologies. And hackers who choose to use them can win serious prizes. The best API usage is a lunch with a VC. So if you're an entrepreneur, you want to win that. A representative from Microsoft tells me they find more desirable talent here than among computer science grads. Is it possible that you could actually hire people from here? Most definitely. I'd say we've recruited quite a few folks from hackathons. A lot of what university students learn now is not necessarily something that companies are hiring for. So literally, you can learn something six months ago, and that's no longer fresh by the time that you graduate. The hackathon is really a way for, like, for kids to stay fresh because they're working on like, new next-generation technology. They're working on like, emerging products. They're building the next robot. Let's meet one of these hackers. James flew here all the way from New Jersey. This will be his 22nd hackathon. Yeah, I can't find you. If they let him through the door. What university do you go to? I'm from a high school. Huh? You're from a high school student. We were told it's like no high school students allowed. Do you mind waiting at the sign right there? Of course. At 17 years old, James is the quintessential overachiever. Eagle Scout, honor student, varsity debate team, model congress. You know, it happens all the time. No, it's, you know, they, uh, they couldn't find a registration, but the same thing happened last year. So. He's already won prizes at two hackathons. And even though he's still too young to vote, he did software development for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. What's your name? James. Oh, James, come over here. Sure. Fortunately, James's trip to California wasn't for nothing. This is the only exception, Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to be a high school student uh, next year. All right, thanks so much. He's in. When James first discovered hackathons, he found a world full of people like himself. How's it going? Is this table being used? This area? No? All right, thanks so much. The stereotype is we stay at home and we sit in our basements and drink uh, soda and eat pizza. Sorry, James. Nice to meet you. You know, that whole mentality changes when you come to an event like this. The chance that you're going to become friends with people here is extremely high. Just put a book on the seat. Between events, James keeps in touch with the hackathon community online. That's how he found two teammates for this weekend's event. You know, that's the great thing about hackathons is you never tend to work with the same team. I have met so many great people from all over the United States, people that I do think will be the next Mark Zuckerberg and the next, you know, Bill Gates. You get to meet all those people here and now. Let's find out what James and his two teammates are going to create at the hackathon. It's now 11 p.m., and the hackers are getting down to business. We want to be able to vote from this. After a few hours, I check in with James and his teammates to see how it's going. So do you know what you're making yet? We've taken a look at 
how people use uh, mobile phones in African countries, Middle East. And our idea is what if we can use text messaging for submitting votes for elections in those countries. I mean, that's an incredibly ambitious project that you're trying to achieve. When I was your age, I was partying and <laughs> going to raves and all that. Is this fun? It's, there's nothing like it. Hackathons are kind of like a party for me in that you get so much out of it and you have so much fun. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Can I catch up with you guys tomorrow? Yeah. Of course. Let's leave Berkeley and take a quick drive over to Silicon Valley and meet two guys preparing to pitch their startup to a room full of wealthy venture capitalists. Let's listen in as Jackson tells his barber about himself and his startup called Wealthcoin which ties into the online currency called Bitcoin. So you're from the area, Jackson? Or? Actually from Oklahoma City originally. I moved out here about a year and a half ago, though. I'm a designer, co-founder startup with that guy. So what kind of startup do you guys have there? You ever heard of Bitcoin before? No, I haven't. It's just like crazy online currency. And what makes it cool is that no one owns it. It's like decentralized, which means there's no like government or bank that kind of backs it. So our startup lets anyone invest in like stocks and bonds and portfolios with Bitcoin. That's pretty cool, a uniformed uh, currency throughout the world there. Exactly. It's like it brings out like the happy anarchist in everyone, you know? (laughs) Just the right amount. We let people make more money. It's dope. We let people make more money. It's dope, Jackson said. These days in the Bay Area, startup companies are a dime a dozen. In 2014, U.S. venture capitalists spent $48.3 billion investing in these innovative technology startups. They're pouring record-breaking sums into startups hoping to strike gold by backing the next Facebook, Snapchat, or Uber. When we come back, more with Lisa Ling. This is life. Silicon Savants. And that's what we do here in Our American Stories. Periodically, we take a dip into what's happening on TV, in the culture. And Lisa Ling's This This Is Life on CNN is one of the more interesting shows out there. And it's on at odd times, so we track it so you don't have to. More on Silicon Savants, Silicon Valley, and young people who it looks like may never go to college. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with this modern-day San Francisco gold rush, Silicon Savants. It's a story Lisa Ling told on This Is Life on CNN, and I think uh, the next hackathon, I want to send one of our one of our team members out there, because I think what's missing here is just the sense of play. Lisa's treating this like a straight reporting story, and my goodness, these kids are a blast, and they're just doing Wild things with lives. You know, there was a day, folks, and we talk about this a lot on this show, when people didn't go to college to do great engineering and innovative feats. 
you know, Thomas Edison wasn't going to college. Alexander Graham Bell, they were inventing. They were tinkering. The guys who got us to air, to space, to flight, they were the Wright brothers. They were bicycle shop owners, and they were tinkerers on the side. And now everybody's studying, and everybody's getting advanced degrees and certifications. As we heard, as we heard from a Microsoft executive, we don't want to hire from the colleges because they're not doing, those kids aren't doing the coolest, newest stuff. It's these kids who are just going to the hackathon. Well, that's a recruiting source for us. So back to the story. Here's Lisa Ling talking about this gold rush and Jackson's attempt to hit pay dirt with his two college dropout team members. Again, here's Lisa Ling. Jackson's team has already secured $375,000 in commitments from venture capitalists. Their goal is to raise a million to launch their startup. But for now, they're sharing a 15 by 20 foot room that reminds me a lot of a college dorm. Wow, this space is tiny. (laughs) It's cozy. So who gets the mattress? Uh, We had like a long conversation and it got deep and then I got shafted with a mattress. (laughs) Shafted with a mattress. Where do these young folks come from? Here's Jackson telling us about his childhood. We will also be hearing a home video interview of him as a 13-year-old. You're only 19 years old, so technically you still are a kid, but what were you like when you were a little kid? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really didn't think the same way as other kids, and I have always kind of had my own version of reality. How old are you? I'm 13. You're 13, and when did you get started with, like, vlogging and stuff? I guess November of last year I started the blog, and then I started my podcast in March. Did you know anything about development or design or...? I do freelance graphic and web design, and I've been doing that for about a year now. When I was 12, I started a video podcast and I started uh, doing some freelance web design for local small businesses around Oklahoma City. And uh, that just kind of escalated to a a love for all things kind of tech and design related. Wow. So you're going to start a business now? Oh, yeah. I have a business. Are you making money? Yes. Yes. What kind of student were you? Uh, Terrible. I failed almost all of my classes. What? Yeah. Why is that? I, I wouldn't do homework is what it was. I would leave school, I would go home, and I would work on freelance web design for clients. How did your parents feel about this? Uh, terrible for the longest time. I mean, what, what are you going to do when your kid's like failing out of school, basically, consistently every year? My college counselor called my mom and dad in together, and she said, you know, I think your son is on drugs. <laughs> Jackson's mom gave him a choice, school or work but not both. When I was actually faced with the opportunity, hey, choose one, but just focus on one thing, then I immediately took a step back and said, wow, I could be doing this all the time. So after that, I dropped out. And do you have any regrets about not even having a high school diploma? Not even, no. Our current high school system isn't set up in a way that encourages students to succeed. It's set up in a way that encourages students to all meet the same standards. What you're saying is very controversial, you know that. I understand that, but it's something that everyone's going to realize sooner or later. By the way, there's Lisa Ling editorializing. I think half of America thinks what this young man is saying is not controversial at all, and that schools breed and teach conformity, and we're pretty much put together for the 20th century industrial era, and it's making very little sense as it relates to the 21st century information age. 
Let's head back to the hackathon, though, and see how things are going with the Eagle Scout high schooler James and his team who are attempting to create a program for third world nations that will allow citizens to vote from their phones. So it's 11.30 p.m. Saturday night. How is everything going? We're making pretty good progress. We're trying to get authentication working so that we can make sure that, you know, one person equals one vote. They don't submit votes on multiple phones. I noticed you lost a partner here. Yes. Vivek yeah. is gone. Is he, uh, is he sleeping? I lost him to the horrors of being awake for 30 hours straight, but he's, he's asleep somewhere. The last time I was here, it was 2 a.m. Uh... <laughs> 2 a.m. this morning. This morning. Yes. So did you sleep then since we saw you last? So I went to sleep shortly after that. I took a nap for 30 minutes this afternoon at some point. You've only slept 30 minutes? Yeah. No, come on. Yeah, I slept in the stairwell. <laughs> oh, my God, Paula. <laughs> it, it was fine. I generally don't sleep during hackathons. And this is the thing, folks. Millennials are oftentimes seen as lazy and entitled which to a degree can be true, but never ever label any generation because, well, generations have been doing that to the one that follows them forever. But what is also true is that what is often labeled as lazy is just plain boredom. One of the alternatives to the traditional college education is a controversial new learning institution in downtown San Francisco. This is Make School, a radical alternative to college. It's a two-year program with 33 students, and they are really, really smart. In fact, some of the students here have turned down places like MIT and Harvard to be here. So who in Silicon Valley would create an institution like this? A 23-year-old college dropout, of course. We're taking students who have already discovered they're very passionate about building apps, and we are giving them a shortened, focused university experience that'll let them pursue a career as a software developer or a startup founder. Ashu Desai co-founded Make School. The program differs from traditional school in one major way. It's a startup itself funded by venture capitalists. And they only invest because they hope to see a return. How does Make School work? Do students pay tuition? Students won't pay upfront tuition. They'll pay tuition through their earnings. By aligning our incentives directly with students, we're only making money if the students are having good outcomes. That's brilliant. It's like, a, it's like Hollywood actors and athletes. They have agents, and then the agent, well, they invest in the athlete, they invest in the artist, they get them coaches, and if that all works out, they get 10%. This is brilliant. Let's meet a make school student, 19-year-old Ebenezer. Here's his background. So I grew up in a little village in Ethiopia. My mom had the only radio. So when I was born, my mom let me take apart the radio. And as I grew up, I took apart the TV. Um, so anything I could get my hands on. So it was always interesting to me how things worked. Ebenezer's family moved to the States when he was 10, and he discovered computers. My dad told me to get a job the summer of eighth grade. So I went to the library, grabbed a few books on programming, and thought I could make a living off this. And I did some gigs for my neighbor, made some websites, made my first $100 off that. And that first $100 has, you know, gotten me here. At age 14, Ebenezer launched his first startup. Before long, he had 15 employees and was pulling in serious profits. Can I ask about how much money you were making while you were in high school? My company was worth almost a million dollars. Before you sold it? Yeah. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Silicon Savants. Lisa Ling's This Is Life. 
We cover these kinds of stories because we know you miss them. We don't. More after these messages. Our American stories in our final segment of Lisa Ling's Silicon Savants. A fascinating hour on CNN. I wish it had been just a little lighter. These kids are terrific. And they're pushing boundaries, pushing an envelope that I think a lot of parents are wondering about, frankly. And that is that in this digital age, when things are moving so fast, our kids are just really bored in school, more bored than ever before. Hey, look, when we were in school, there wasn't Facebook. There wasn't this speed. When we came home, there wasn't this speed of technology. So things moved and plotted along, and so did our lives. It was, I think, an easier time to not be bored. But today, all the more reason to maybe think about or rethink how we do schools, how we do everything. In the last segment, we had heard from a make-school student, 19-year-old Ebenezer, and by the way, his background, it was just fascinating listening to this young man. Why did this incredibly intelligent young guy bypass college in favor of this place called Make School? After high school, Ebenezer planned to study computer science and business at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Thank you. But then he discovered Make School, and his plans changed overnight. Was there always an expectation that you would go to university? Of course. My parents and all my friends thought, hey, this guy's crazy. But I think times are changing. We're in the digital era right now, and that's not going to change. It's only going to get bigger and bigger. It's so true, and make school is bottom-up, and so much education is top-down. You know, I was just reading Lincoln's Greatest Case. It's about Abraham Lincoln's great case. He was representing the railroads against the steamboat industry, and it turns out, I'm, I'm reading through the book, and it turns out Lincoln never went to law school. Back then, you didn't need somebody to certify that you were a qualified lawyer or not through a collegiate or accreditation process. He apprenticed for years, he took the bar, and he became one of the greatest lawyers in the history of America. That's how we used to do things. No, no law school debt, no three years guys with patches on their sleeves telling you how to think about well, this issue or that issue as it relates to the Constitution, go work in a law office, work for a while, then take a bar, and then open up your own firm or go work for another firm. 
And I think that's what you're hearing from someone like Ebenezer. He's looking at New Jersey Institute of Technology. It's a private school. It's probably $50,000 a year. He's being taught by people who haven't been in the field for 20 years. And he's thinking, what am I paying for? Why am I going into debt? And in comes Make School. And they say, hey, it's free. And if it works out for you, we want 5%. Oh, my goodness. They're going to be paying 10 or 15% to pay off their darn college loans. This is fascinating stuff, and Lisa Ling, I believe, and Greg, we'll talk about this at the end, I think she stumbled on something. I don't think she was looking for this, and actually it sounds like she's a little surprised and possibly upset at these new makeshift ways of thinking about school. In just two weeks since starting Make School, Ebenezer has made huge strides in developing a phone app. But are these new learning institutions more useful than a college education? Lisa Ling poses that question to the founder of Make School, Ashu Dusay. Ashu says that college curriculums focus too much on theory without giving the students the practical skills they need to succeed outside academia. The trend that you can really watch is the collegiate hackathon scene, where you'll have 1,000 students giving up their weekends, giving up their sleep, because they want to learn about new technologies. It feels very broken that they have to do this on the weekend. For us at May School, we're saying, hey, here's two years of a hackathon. Build cool things. The time has come for Jackson and his team to pitch their Wealthcoin app idea to some 300-plus of the world's wealthiest venture capitalists. 20 other startups will also be there to pitch their company. Lisa Ling has a question for one of the wealthy investors, Pierre Wolf. Do you have concerns about... You know, investing such huge amounts of capital in someone, in in people who've had little experience. Look, were we nervous about investing in Mark Zuckerberg? No, that's the nature of what we do here. The youth are the ones taking chances and some of the big things are happening with them. You got to bet on them because you don't know who's that next spark who's just going to catch that fire. Listen to Lisa, like she's there, do you know what you're doing? And and, and this is, it's a mindset. And, And meanwhile, Pierre Wolf's going, calm down. Young minds have done remarkable things. They're not little snowflakes. You know, when we did, when we were looking at John Adams' life, and we're getting ready for John Adams' life, he was sent off at the age of 12 or 13 by his parents to go to Europe on a boat. And these weren't cruise liners, alone. Because that's how we used to treat young people. Not like snowflakes. You want to go to Europe? Here, go. Live, grow up. Jackson and his team's Wealthcoin app pitch is a success. They net interest from the man who owns the largest Bitcoin mining farm in the United States. Now let's head back to the Berkeley Hackathon and listen in as James, the high school Eagle Scout from New Jersey, receives a grilling as he has his voting app judged. So show me about your hack today. Do you have a phone on you? Sure. You text this number and it asks you to tell Hello. Hey, please enter your first name. It's going to present you with a list of the candidates that you can vote for. So I voted for an illegal candidate. I voted for three, and you had one through two, and you accepted my vote. I'm going to try voting again, see what happens. Yeah. So obviously there was no uh, vote for when you voted for number three. And uh, let's try and... I'm going to try voting a third time. 
Okay, so I voted for three and then two and then one, and it said thank you all the times. Yeah, no, this is you know still a work in progress. So how are you handling the external visibility of all of this? Do you think building a voting system based on Facebook is the right solution? If you look at the Bitcoin system. I'm not talking about money, I'm talking about votes. The main problem is buying votes, especially common in Central America. That's that's how most of the voter fraud is done. So any other questions? That's it. All right, well, thanks so much. Good to see you. Good job. That guy grilled. He really knew what he was talking about. He sure did get grilled. And by the way, that's good. That's how you learn in the end. And the sooner you can drill this down to young people, the better, folks. We all know that. Here's Ling with one hackathon team whose hack impressed the judges. Even Ling herself. These kids are thinking big. The problem that we're tackling is the European migrant crisis. This app connects Syrian refugees to volunteers who can provide them with food, water, and housing. So you thought of this idea here at the hackathon, but what are you going to do with it after? Because this app could really help people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, do you have any idea where you could take this? Yeah, honestly, as college students, right, we have to worry about school and stuff. But uh, it's just kind of crazy because this could actually be so useful right now. Yeah. You guys just created this in 36 hours, and then you're going to go back to school on Monday, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's the life of a hackathon. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that in just a couple of hours, these kids will go back to school and their amazing ideas will just disappear. Seriously? And you built this? It's really got me wondering, are they wasting creative potential? Would the world benefit more if these young people were developing projects instead of sitting in college classrooms? It's brilliant, guys. And that's a good question. And I think it probably took Lisa Ling longer than most of us to turn around and come to that conclusion. We're going to end this hour with parting thoughts from Lisa Ling. This generation of millennials has been called lazy and entitled, but the kids I met are anything but. They're really creating extraordinary things and it makes me excited about the future. I also want to send my daughter to a coding class. I mean, she's only two, but why not start her early? And why not? Why not? Greg, you watched this segment. Uh, talk a little about the, the, the young people in this hackathon. What did it look like? Where did it happen? And, and what, what was the mass turnout for something like this? And how often does this happen around the country? Well, it happens a lot. But I just want to talk really quickly about what she just said about starting her kid at two. That is the public school mentality. It is, let me get my kid, let me push my kid into being smarter instead of just sitting back and let them be self starters themselves like that's what the guy said i hire people not who went to college but the the ones who just sat at home and were self-motivated ling is still having the public school mentality of oh if i just throw them in it's this idea that if i don't get them in kindergarten early enough they're not going to get into the right college right right and that's what we're told and that's what we're tricked into and just say instead of just sitting back and saying when my kid has the spark then I'm going to come alongside them instead of trying to make the spark happen, which is not going to happen. It's just going to make them hate learning. Yeah, and hate you. Yeah. I mean, ultimately. And, and again, all these great inventors, and this is why we love doing Benjamin Franklin and listening to Walter Isaacson, and we're going to do a great hour on Franklin and reading his book. My goodness. The parents weren't saying, now, now Benjamin, get that kite out there and go discover electricity. It's just not how it happened. No. He was a curious guy about a lot of things. And if you can encourage curiosity in your kids and then leave them alone, right. it might go a long way. 
And uh, let's just keep looking out for Lisa Ling. There's hope for her. But in the end, she's always that mindset of top-down, of how, how can we say it best, the hierarchical structures and thinking this is best for our kids. And by the way, best for how we live our day-to-day lives uh, is just, uh, she's a work in progress, Lisa. And this is our American stories. This is what we love to talk about, folks. And this hackathon, the next time we give a report from a hackathon, we're going to be at the hackathon. And we may even follow some of these young people's lives for a while. Because it's easy to do here in Our American Stories. It's a phone. It's a cell phone. No cameras necessary. And thanks for joining us as always. We appreciate you listening. Without you, there is no show. Without you, there is no Our American Stories. Send your stories. We'll put them on the air. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Sweet Charity Series. It's our talk about generosity, brought to us, as always, by our partners at the Philanthropy Roundtable, and as always, Carl Zinsmeister. Take it away, Carl. You know, it's not uncommon for a philanthropic gift to end up going in an entirely different direction from what was originally expected. That's usually fine, so long as the giver and the recipient are communicating and agreeing, and neither are forgetting what they're good at and what they really value. Sometimes, in fact, a changed course leads to something really wonderful. An example of that would be one of the donations that Ira Fulton made to Brigham Young University. Fulton is a classic entrepreneur who made money founding computer companies and selling clothes and building homes. He's also a tithing Mormon and a hugely generous philanthropist. Back in 1999, he was impressed with an idea from an engineering professor at Brigham Young who wanted to acquire a supercomputer for the school so that students could do the complex modeling needed for high-end car design. Thanks to Ira Fulton's generosity, BYU soon had the machine on campus. But once a powerful tool like that is humming away, you never quite know what students are going to do with it. In 2002, that engineering professor helped some students use the big machine to create an animated film. It was called Lemmings, and it was good, winning both a Student Academy Award and a Student Emmy. That was the first in a string of brilliant student-made animated films out of BYU that soon had collected five Oscars and 16 Emmys. And excited Ira Fulton started donating more supercomputers. BYU strung them together, and in short order, the college had the big league processing power to sustain Disney and Pixar levels of animation. 
In 2010, that computer engineering professor recruited colleagues from the College of Fine Arts and the Science Department to join him in launching the BYU Center for Animation. By then, the college had created a series of classes and two separate degrees in animation. Talented students flocked in, and soon this upstart in Utah found its graduates being avidly snatched up by movie studios like Sony, Pixar, and Disney, top computer game makers like Blizzard, and television cartoon companies like Nickelodeon. This was a stunning rise to the top of the industry in less than 15 years. Savvy, well-timed philanthropy paid for the new facilities and curricula, and a unique campus culture recognized and reinforced by Ira Fulton and other givers was another crucial contributor. BYU was not only a new arrival in animation, and located far from the traditional entertainment centers of Los Angeles and New York, but also much smaller than the established film schools. Brigham Young turns out only about 25 animation majors every year. But they're different from other film students. Nearly all are Mormons. Many marry and become parents just as they are starting their careers. And BYU requires them to take not just training in the animation trade, but also core classes in English, history, and religion. And BYU doesn't follow the traditional film school method of having each student create his own film. Instead, the animation majors work in teams. Each team comes up with an idea for a movie. The entire department discusses and then votes to choose one winning concept and select the director and chief animators. Then everyone works together to turn that concept into a yearly animated film. Great animation is hugely labor-intensive and specialized. Some animators end up as experts who just create hair or water or faces. There has to be close coordination among different designers and music and dialogue specialists and programmers who pull everything together. Vanity and selfishness and big egos are not a great match for film animation. When the BYU professors were consulting closely with the major film studios to design a curriculum for this new school that would prepare their students for top-level jobs, the studio executives often surprised them. For one thing, they wanted to hire people who weren't just artists and weren't just computer whizzes, but who brought rounded, humane values to their work. And they said they needed young people who understand cooperation. Ed Catmull, the brilliant founder of Pixar, told BYU professor Brent Adams, we can't find people who are good at collaborating. Professor Adams pointed out that his Mormon students, growing up in big families with an emphasis on community, tended to be pretty good at teamwork and pretty light on ego. And then the studio executives gave Adams some even more surprising guidance on what they would value in new hires for their films or video games. Listen to him tell the tale here. I went to a head of HR at a major studio and I said, okay, you've hired one of my students. We're looking at curriculum. What should it be? And she, she got really nervous and she looks around in her office, head of HR. She gets up, closes the door to her office and says, uh, will you please make sure your students keep taking religion classes? And I, I, what, you know, I mean, they're going to because BYU, but, <laughs> and she said, we don't want you to come here and make us all Mormons. <laughs> we're okay with our religion, but this industry attracts creeps and we're tired of creeps. And we're tired of working with creeps and creeps make creepy movies. And then she opened the door and then we taught curriculum. Okay. Animation is the most family friendly part of the film industry. 
But popular movies of all sorts tend to have big moral themes and the ability to spell out and wrestle with real good and true evil. Understanding human frailties and temptations and finding a way to bring to light the better nature of human beings is one of the most fundamental requirements of positive visual storytelling. BYU's mature, educationally rounded, ethically trained students turned out to be perfect matches in many cases for the comparatively wholesome animation business. That's where their students have quickly collected so many industry awards and film festival prizes and been snatched up by top entertainment firms. The products of the Brigham Young Animation Center know how to work selflessly in teams. They are trained in the practical business needs of entertainment commerce, and they bring a moral imagination to their work, a determination to create films and games and TV shows that can lift rather than darken the spirits of their audience. Ira Fulton's giving to Brigham Young University totals close to $100 million, and one of its most productive elements was a misfire on auto design that turned into a bunch of funny cartoons that get people thinking. That's the kind of course correction that philanthropy can be great at. This is Our American Story, Sweet Charity, brought to us every week by the Philanthropy Roundtable, and thanks as always to Carl Zinsmeister, and pick up his book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And our own Alex Cortez loves to regularly bring us great stories about human freedom and what can happen when it's unleashed in a free economy and occasionally what happens when governments get in the way. And today's story is about human freedom and potential in a place where you might least expect it. Here's Alex. You're about to hear the voices of five young siblings from Syria. Mama Tawid and Haifa. My mom was tall and thin. Her face was tall. She loved us and used to spoil us a lot and stuff. All of my mom's food was delicious. They brought her body to us after she was shot by the Air Force from the airplanes. We started crying over her. We were crazy about her. My dad died because he inhaled the gas of a bombing at the beginning of the revolution. He killed them. The he is Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian dictator who has murdered his own country's civilians, innocent civilians, in its civil war. Like three million other Syrians, these five young children fled their own country to fight for their survival. Another 8 million have been internally displaced to a different part of their country. Together, that's almost half of Syria's population who has been forced out of their hometowns. And they're the lucky ones. 300,000 will never see their hometowns again, losing their lives in the conflict. 
neighboring country, Jordan, hosts over 600,000 of the refugees. Almost one-tenth of their native population. These five children you heard from are among the 430,000 refugees that have passed through just one of Jordan's refugee camps called Zatari, just six miles from Syria's southern border. At one point, it was the largest refugee camp in the world, and it's Jordan's fourth largest city, a refugee camp, the fourth largest city. 85,000 refugees live there today. But no one wanted to take in these five children, because there's five of them, until one woman heard about them. And her husband said to bring them to their makeshift home in the refugee camp. Can you believe that? Adopting when you're in a refugee camp. Here she is speaking to Vice. The small children are a bit more accepting of the situation. Hanin, the eldest, she's still suffering from this problem. She saw her mother when she was shot. She can't forget that scene. Sometimes at any time at night when you come in, you'll find her awake. She doesn't sleep. She has non-stop anxiety, nervousness. Like many refugee camps of the past and present, they're filled with gut-wrenching stories like this. But unlike all others, at Zatari, there's something else going on too. Like a lot of something else. Like a guy who blings up bicycles in a refugee camp. A pizza shop in a refugee camp. And my favorite one of all, a bridal store in a refugee camp. Women used to come here, say they have weddings, and they can't find dresses. So we got two dresses for rent, and it worked out well. We're listening to its owner, a gentleman named Ataf, speaking through a translator. We have two weddings a day, and there are people who come from outside the camp to rent dresses because it's cheaper here. Wait a minute! Non-refugees come to a refugee camp to purchase something because it's better than what they can get anywhere else? If that is not the definition of crazy, I do not know what is. Things are so crazy at the Zattery refugee camp. Over 3,000 businesses generating $13 million of economic activity a month that they even have their own Champs-Élysées. It's what the refugees jokingly and quite seriously call their main thoroughfare, a lively one reminiscent of the famous French shopping street, the Champs-Élysées. And even though the French one is just a tad bit more posh, at their core, they're the same. Entrepreneurs busting their butts to solve problems for other people. I went to the camp and noticed that everybody needed water, a lot. And so I decided to open this store. 
Thank God the choice was right. These are the tanks where we keep the water before desalination. It cleans it from the sand, dust, and anything else. All of the debris is removed from this filter. And this entrepreneur's water is cleaner than the water provided by the United Nations. And he's a refugee. I was a prisoner. When I was done with the detention, I came here. At the beginning of the camp, the UN provided every meal to the refugees. But today, they provide a voucher that's loaded onto a debit card, powered by the American company MasterCard, that enables them to have more control over their lives. We are very happy with the vouchers. Before, all we had was bulgur, lentils, rice, and canned food. It was limited. Now, we can have yogurt, cheese, sardines, tuna, and other foods we didn't have before. The change respected their dignity as unique and free individuals at a time when they felt least free in their lives. And it enabled an even greater dignity. The vouchers empowered the refugees to spend the money anywhere, fueling the creation of businesses to provide for their needs and desires, which fueled employment opportunities at these businesses and fueled the irreplaceable dignity that comes from work that the refugees had been so desperate to have back. Some people say the camp was better in the old days when they used to distribute meals, but I think that now is better. We're listening to a barber speaking through a translator whose shop is on their version of the Champs-Élysées. We can open our own shops, and the fact that this is possible is good for us. Now we're living like anyone else. The UN chief of the camp, Killian Kleinschmidt, has noted that today there's more perfume for sale. There's more lingerie. I feel underdressed when I go to the supermarket. People dress up to go shopping here. In fact, his UN has now concluded that helping refugees find jobs and start enterprises like the ones you've heard from is cheaper than humanitarian assistance. As long as these businesses continue to provide value to customers, they continue to generate profits that provide for the livelihood of their employees. A self-sustaining and never-ending engine of vitality, unlike humanitarian assistance that requires constant feeding from all of us and from the governments who we fund. In addition to the vibrant business life, there's another inescapable sign that the refugees have hope in the future. Babies. A lot of babies. Any moment in Sa'atu camp, uh, about 2,000 women are pregnant. And the refugees' birth rate is higher than that of Jordan. And not a single mother has died in pregnancy, despite the rather atypical birthing environments. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. Beautiful job, Alex. What a story. And again... Human freedom, what happens when we unleash it anywhere in this country, in this world? And we love bringing you stories like these. The Champs-Élysées in a refugee camp. I just can't get over that. It's fantastic.
This is Our American Stories, and you can hear all of these stories, all that we do, on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Post your stories, if you find any, about such things, about human freedom, about liberty, about your experience of friends or something you read at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. our american stories and we love to talk about music on this show as you know hope you do too i hope you love hearing what we talk about and we also love this day in history stories we like to bring as many as we can every day and well this segment we love because it combines both on this day in history in 1932 a man whose music you all know died He was an American and a music man, and like music, existed in time, and that time was a long time ago, a time where no one thought to complain that baseball, the national game, was slow. It was a time when America dared to believe in itself. He gave it all his gifts. He was John Philip Sousa. It all began in the capital city of Washington, D.C., where John Philip Sousa was born the first son and the third child of ten children on November 6, 1854. Sousa's father served in the Marine Band for nearly 25 years. If Thomas Jefferson established the Marine Band, it was John Philip Sousa who made it a musical organization of the first rank. Sousa's personal musical genius showed itself early. Sousa's teacher was incredibly demanding and apparently no child psychologist. When the boy showed him his first composition, the teacher humiliated Sousa by hurling it away and announcing it as bread and cheese music. Sousa was eight years old. After suffering further indignities over the next two years, the boy finally one day almost used his fists on the teacher and declared that he was giving up music. Sousa's father, a wise man, said, All right and got the boy a job in an all-night bakery while he continued regular school all day. After two nights, young Sousa was totally exhausted. The father then negotiated terms between his son and the music teacher, and Sousa's musical gifts evolved in peace. When Sousa was 13, he secretly agreed to accept the offer of a circus band leader to leave home and travel with the Big Top Band. But Sousa's father, who had gotten wind of the plan, arranged something even more exciting to the youngster's imagination. The morning Sousa was to join the circus, his father brought him instead to the Marine Barracks and enlisted the boy in the Corps and the Marine Band. But by age 20, 
Souza had given up the security of the Marine Corps and set out to make his own way in the world. In September 1880, the opportunity came that would lead Souza to his distant place in the American pantheon. He was invited to re-enlist and take over as the leader of the Marine Band. The band made its debut at the White House on New Year's Day, 1881. His great marches that would establish his renown forever were captivating the nation. Among them, the wonderful Washington Post March. He composed the great march inspired by and named for the Marine Corps model Semper Fidelis, a Latin phrase that means always faithful. Then an enterprising promoter named David Blakely convinced Sousa to leave the Marines and go on tour with his own Sousa band. Blakely assumed financial risk and guaranteed a salary of four times over what he had been making. The band succeeded beyond Blakely's wildest expectations and lasted for 39 years. He had an uncanny knack for pleasing and surprising audiences everywhere. His range was astonishing. He was presenting music from Richard Wagner ten years before it was performed at the Metropolitan Opera, and because he knew the people wanted it, added jazz to the repertoire as well. He didn't care much for jazz, calling it music that made you want to go home and bite your grandmother. Sousa insisted that his sopranos had to be gifted, but they also had to be pretty. His instrumental soloists were superb, but they also had to be crowd pleasers. He drove himself to the point of physical exhaustion. And in later years, when everyone believed he had every right to slow down, he said, "When you hear of Sousa retiring, you will hear of Sousa dead." Between the band's success and the royalties on his compositions, Sousa soon became a millionaire. In 1910 and 11, Sousa's band made a tour of the world, but a few years later, the world itself was not so harmonious. When the United States entered World War One. Sousa immediately wanted to serve. He was by then 62 years old. Still, it was arranged for him to join the navy as a lieutenant. To feel closer to these young men, Sousa shaved his iconic beard and joked, "This caused Germany to sue for peace, since it made the Kaiser realize that no nation willing to meet such sacrifices could be beaten." By the 20s, Sousa had become a national asset, an institution. His birthdays bordering on becoming national holidays. Here's Sousa on his 75th birthday. I don't know whether I'm worthy of such an honor, but I'm going to accept it just the same. It isn't everyone that can get a cake on his 75th birthday. Sousa worked tirelessly for the rights of professional musicians. He, along with Victor Herbert. Had helped to gain copyright recognition for music used in piano rolls and phonograph recordings, and later on, radio. He coined the phrase "canned music" and was the founding member of ASCAP, the first organization to protect rights and collect royalties for composers, authors, and publishers from all uses of their music. On March 6, 1932, Sousa died unexpectedly in his room in the Abraham Lincoln Hotel from a heart attack. He was eight months short of his 78th birthday. He had been right about how the world would hear of his retirement. John Phillips was dead, 
and is buried at Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. The Marine Band commemorates Sousa's birthday every year with a ceremony at his grave. He wrote Taps, and with it, an anthem for America. He wrote it, he said, on shipboard one night standing by the railing, looking out over the ocean as he was returning from Europe to America, with divine inspiration, he said. It came to him, totally note for note, not one of which had to be changed when finally he set it down on paper. Fittingly, the last piece he conducted the night before he died, and probably the best words I can say, is the stars and stripes forever. John Philip Sousa, This Day in History. And what a story. 62 years old, and he wants to join the Navy. Wow. You talk about loving your country. This is why I hate it when people mock people who love their country like that. You can choose not to love your country, but don't make fun of people who do. And my goodness. Talk about stepping up. Also founder of ASCAP, the writer of this music that now is just classical American music. And all of it today brought to you by the folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to go to learn everything about American history, about life, about philosophy, about the arts. And of course, always sports. You'll play it if your child goes there, if you go there. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, if you went to college and never felt like you learned enough, if you didn't go to college and want to learn some more, go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu and check out their great online courses. The C.S. Lewis course is a must. In Economics 101, I just loved it. And my favorite, the Constitution 101, I learned more taking that class than I did in three years of law school at the University of Virginia about my own country. This is Our American Stories. stories and from time to time we like to bump in and out with some of the music of Gary Clark Jr., a young man who has risen to the top of the blues scene in just a few years. That's who we're listening to now with his track Third Stone from the Sun. Gary Lee Clark Jr. was born in February 15, 1984 in Austin, Texas, one of America's great music towns. He won a Grammy in 2013 for Best Traditional R&B Performance. Eric Clapton said that hearing Gary Clark Jr., made him want to play the guitar again. Buddy Guy says that this kid could be the one to save the blues. Not bad accolades for a 32-year-old musician. 
In this documentary from Rolling Stone, we meet Gary Clark Jr. in the garage of someone he calls his biggest musical influence, Eve Monse, a white girl he met in the third grade who played the guitar. Here, these two reminisce about those early years of their friendship together. Can I use this thing? Sure, yeah. Remember the little 10-watt amp I used to have? Was it a crate? Yeah, trying to compete with this thing. (laughs) I'm turning, like, all the way up. And the Grammy goes to... Gary Clark Jr., please come home. I'm so, I have no idea what to say. This is amazing. Um, Eve Monse, I wouldn't be playing guitar. I wouldn't be playing music. If it weren't for her, she took me to my first gig, and it all started from there. What did we play back then? I kind of felt like we, we would just, you know, play, yeah. play stuff. And I remember sort of... hearing you play that stuff. When yeah, yeah. Down the house. That was kind of what perked my ear. I was like, what are y'all doing now? <laughs> you know, people ask me, like, who's your musical influence? Who do you look up to? It's like, that was her. You know, from my window, sitting around, you know, doing my homework or whatever I'm doing, I'm hearing this. I'm like, I want to go be a part of that. And she let me be a part of it. One, two. Third grade uh, was when we moved to Austin and from Houston, and um, Gary was one of the one of the kids in the class. I just think we were like in the middle of reading like Hank the Cow Dog or something, and she was introduced to the class. Hey, this is a new student from uh, Houston. Her name's Eve Monse. Came and sat in the circle and found out she lived right down the street. They went through three schools, you know, together, elementary, you know, middle school and high school and and, uh, doing basketball and doing other activities at school. He was a brother she never had, I guess you could say, you know, Uh, for Gary, it was like, and she was like another sister. Around 11, my parents got me a, a guitar for my birthday and to have that sound, to be able to move your fingers on this instrument and make this sound was like the coolest thing in the world i thought it was cool that you know she could hear a record or whatever and be able to translate and figure out how to play it i just was drawn in right away i just wanted to be around it all the time the pair became obsessed with a bootleg tape of 60s footage of blues greats like t-bone walker performing in germany Rewinding and watching and rewatching licks again and again. Here again is Gary Clark Jr. and Eve Monse. We'd hang out and we'd play in the garage. Just you know, we could play loud, and it was just kind of a place to escape, you know, uh, everything else that was going on and just do our thing. You know, I really just liked playing. I was more into just the wailing and, and all that. And she really started to get into the history and the blues. The musician tells a story and lives a story through his music. There was a a period in the 60s where they would bring these awesome musicians from America over to Germany and film them. There was this bootleg tape going around and we ended up with this copy and and it was, you know, we'd never seen footage of T-Bone Walker before or any of these guys.
we would watch this stuff and you know some of that stuff T-Bone Walker's pretty fast so we're like okay wait back it up okay as I go oh oh yeah I got it okay you know so we try to learn from the tape that was the thing that we shared that uh, none of our other friends shared with us was the music I thought I was going to be the next boys to men or something you know I didn't know what I was going to do being here in this garage kind of helped change my mind about what I wanted to do with my life you know the guitar you know, the rock and roll of it, it was edgier it was cooler it was more rebellious and I was like yeah I'm going to go do that here Eve's parents Eve and Gary Clark Jr. talk about winning talent shows in school they also started playing in bars when they were in the eighth grade um, in middle school they decided to form a band for the talent show we played pride and joy steve ray vaughn that was like you know one of the earliest on stage moments that we had they won first place in that and the audience was just screaming like they were at some big huge rock concert one of those moments where I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. It's, it's crazy. I, I guess I still haven't, like, soaked up that I'm sitting here <laughs> and it's been so long. And what, seeing the parents here, I'm thinking about, you know, being too young to drive and hopping in the car and going to Antone's or Joe's generic bar. We were kids and then going to school and people would be like, what did you do last night? Like, you have no idea, you know. They were up there playing until two, 2 in the morning. We had to you know, stay right there with them. You know, it was 21, so uh, except for them two. Here, Gary Clark Jr. and Eve talk about how things all started to change when he started playing at Antone's in Austin, and they began going their separate ways. And then, and then Gary got a letter in the mail from Eric Clapton. For me, the moment where it started to become real was playing shows at Antone's. And it was really jumping here for many years. Clifford would go out of his way to hire everybody he could. You didn't come play in Antones because you were trying to help your career. You came to Antones and played because it was fun, and uh, you, you never knew who was going to show up. Hanging around Antones, you got to be introduced to guys like James Cotton and Pine Top Perkins. You were someone. The further I was going, it seemed like the history was coming up. I mean, I don't think we expected to feel so welcomed into the whole community. Well, we were like the new blood, you know, so they supported that. When we first started playing, we didn't know anybody. It was like we only knew each other, and that was it. And then we started meeting these other people. We kind of started to go separate ways. She started playing with a different band, and we just grew up and moved out of the house. And, yeah, friends and parties and girls and things like that. I spent years playing at the Continental Club, playing at Antones. Kind of the starving artist, but didn't want to do anything else. You know, I wanted to play music. That was it. 2010, I get a call from Doyle Bramhall. He says, I think, uh, I think Eric Clapton uh, might call you for this 
Crossroads Festival. Have you heard of it? Sure enough, I get a letter in the mail from the dude inviting me to come to his festival. 28,000 people or something, which is, I've never seen that many people in my life. And all of a sudden, I'm standing in front of them and they're looking at me like, what are you going to do? I hope you're awesome. Get lost in this city, try to find myself. I meet some guys from the label. A little while later, put out my first record called Black and Blue. And things just kind of been crazy since. And here Eve talks about her band. While she has yet to reach the level of fame that Gary has achieved, he says that he wouldn't be where he is now without her. Then we hear them jam a little bit to close out this great story. My main band's called Even the Exiles. I've been in the studio, we're working on a new record, and I feel like anything I'll ever do, it'll still have that blues foundation. Eve is my partner in She knows more about and understands more about what I'm doing than I do, I think. If it hadn't been for her mentorship and friendship and support, I don't think I would be sitting here in this chair. This was the cool place to be for me. I mean, playing music, playing basketball. Yeah. Just kind of walking back with my little amp or my guitar back to my house, thinking like, yeah, this is, you know, what now? You know what I mean? So, I don't know. This was the happy place, I guess. I guess so. Guy Clark Jr., an amazing American blues talent from humble beginnings, with a humble heart who isn't afraid to give credit where credit is due. What a great story about music, about guitars, about friendship. And by the way, we never mentioned Gary Clark Jr. is black and Eve Monsey is white. And they don't care. And we love telling those kinds of stories here on Our American Stories all the time. Because in America, most of the time, almost all the time, we just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> 